For those of you who don't know me, my name is Matt King. I am one of the pastors here on staff. Typically, I'm back with the kids in the children's ministry. Kurt Bubna, our senior pastor, is still recovering from Thanksgiving, and uh, <laughs> he asked me to preach this Sunday, and uh, I think part of the reason why he asked me to preach is because of the subject, and uh, we're in a sermon series. It's called uh, the, the Dumbest, Six Dumbest Things I've Learned in Church, and uh, this particular sermon today deals with uh, good Christians don't. And then that blank that typically gets filled in there. And Kurt asked me to preach specifically on two topics. One, drinking, and the other, tattoos. <laughs> and I have no idea why he would ask me, <laughs> of all people, to preach on something like that. Um, and, and this is a, a, a sermon that I have taught before. Not this sermon, but a sermon very similar to it. In fact... Years ago, I did a sermon series, and I dealt with a sermon that was titled, Go to Hell. And what I was encouraging people to do was to be careful with the way that they approached people within our community or within our society that are non-Christians, because when they refused to get engaged in a loving manner with them, what they were essentially saying was to them is, if your salvation has anything to do with me, go to hell, because I'm not going to do anything to attempt at sharing the love of God with you by my actions and certainly not with my words. During that sermon, before I even got halfway done, I had eight families stand up and walk out. And so I recognize that today, the things that I am going to say might push some buttons of some people. And that being the case, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you right, right up front, my heart is definitely, it, from the soul and core of who I am, my heart is for you. I am not going to try to just push your buttons for the sake of pushing buttons, okay? But you need to know this for the record. I drink. I do. I've never been drunk a day in my life. But boy, I enjoy a good beer. I enjoy a great glass of wine. I also smoke cigars. And I have paired a fine brandy or a whiskey with a cigar many times <laughs> over the last 20 plus years uh, since uh, I've been 18 years old. My grandpa taught me how to do that. A God-fearing and God-loving man. And so I'm a good person to speak on this subject. Now, that being the case, I understand that that is a big problem for some of, uh, maybe not for some of you, but it is for some people. Because some people believe that those things are strictly prohibited within the Bible. So today I want to address that subject. But there's a deeper and, and, and much more important underlying significance to this message beyond just doctrine, beyond just rules. It's about an attitude of God toward people that he wants us to have toward people. So today, that's what I'm going to talk about. It's the good Christians, and what do they do? What do they not do? How is that supposed to look? And in order to do that, what I have to do is I have to give somewhat of an explanation by comparison and contrast. Comparison and contrast between what Christians and non-Christians are dealing with today and what Jews and Gentiles were dealing with back in the time when Jesus was walking around here on earth and even prior to that. And so... I have for you, if you've uh, grabbed these sermon notes back there, a breakout of a, a passage that I'm going to read through, and I've broken it out into some sections. If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. If not, no worries. It's going to be up here on the screen for you, and so you can follow right along. But I'm going to read through this passage, and then we're going to break it out, and I'm going to explain some of my reasoning behind the, uh, to address the deeper or bigger issue than drinking slash tattoo slash anything else that you want to put into that blank. Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. 
Paul is the author here. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he states this. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called, quote, unquote, uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Great passage. I want to break it down into three chunks or three sections. The first I'm going to refer to as the problem section. It's verses 11 and 12. If you have one of those pages of notes, you'll see that it's separated there. And that blank there is the problem. Here's the problem. Originally, when God saw humanity, he knew that there was this gap between him and them. It's one of the oldest stories of the Bible. It's the oldest theme of the Bible. It's the separation of God and mankind, brought about by the sin choice of mankind, Adam and Eve. Most people who don't even really know the Bible know a little bit about that story. Well, that story and its cause and effect has led to a gap between God and man. So what God chose to do was to embrace humanity. And he embraced a man by the name of Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I choose you. It has nothing to do with you other than my love for you. I choose you. I believe that you are the right person to become the father of a great nation. Why? Because of your faithfulness. Why? Because of my love. Why? Because of the fact that there is this gap between me and mankind. And I feel like you're the best person to work this, this arrangement through. And I'm going to bless you, and I am going to make this great nation out of your descendants. And, he, and God did that, and they became the nation of Israel. But back when God first made this promise to him, he said, I want to bring all nations to myself, and I want to be a blessing to all nations through you. God's original plan was not, never to have this gap between the ones that God had chosen and everybody else. 
What he wanted was everybody to belong to him. And he wanted to bless everybody and bring all people to himself through the Jews. And indeed, he has done that through Christ, who was an Israelite, who was a Jew. But that was the original plan, but that's not what ended up happening. And Paul describes that in this first passage here, the first part of the passage. And he uses these words like outsider, excluded, that they were uncircumcised heathens. He refers to these people as without God and without hope. They were rejected. They were unaccepted. That's the way that a Gentile felt whenever they were around a Jew. The Jew would make them feel as if they weren't just a second-class citizen. They made them feel as if, quite frankly, that they were worthless, that they had zero value in them whatsoever simply because they weren't a Jew. They weren't selected. They weren't a part of this system, this legal system of laws and beliefs and rules and structure and doctrine and everything that came along with it, and they didn't know it. And if they ever wanted to be a part of the chosen, the elect, the select, the perfect, the wonderful, the Jews, then you had to abide by all of this system. You had to learn these rules. You had to go through this process called circumcision. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody else. But this was what was going on, was this huge gap had been created between Jews and Gentiles that God never wanted. And Paul is referring to that. And I believe that that gap still exists today within the church. In fact, oftentimes, I hang out with people who are not Christians. They don't even profess to be Christians. They know I am, and we still get along great. That's another story at another time in the sermon, but... They share with me sometimes about how they have had Christians treat them and, and behave toward them. And that's a problem that exists in, in the church as a general rule. In fact, I want to do a little experiment here. Now, I understand that anytime a pastor asks somebody to raise their hand in church, that you feel like every person's eyes get locked on you. That's intimidating. But I need you to participate in this experiment, Okay. If you have ever felt fear before visiting a church, fear that you would be unaccepted, fear that you would be excluded, fear that you would be looked down upon, fear that you wouldn't be dressed appropriately, fear that you wouldn't know the ritual or the routine or the words to the songs, fear that when you walked into that place that a lightning bolt from heaven would Scorch through the center of the earth in a pattern just like, you know, you see the outline of you right there. If you've ever feared that, raise your hand and keep that up for a second. Take a look around. You are the brave people. You are the ones who have been courageous enough to, in spite of that fear, show up. How many do you think are still out in this community who haven't? See, it's a problem. It exists. That's the problem that existed then. It's the problem that existed now. And so there has to be a solution to that. There has to be some sort of a solution that would eliminate this gap between people. The gap back then was caused by this system. Again, Paul says that Christ came and he ended this legal system with all of its rules and its trappings. He got rid of it, which leads me to the statement here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Listen to this. 
Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. And he quotes to them, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but but those who know they are sinners. You see, there are two different strategies of evangelism that are exposed in this passage here. There's the evangelistic strategy of Jesus, which is to love those who are living outside of the rules, outside of the doctrine, outside of the practices and beliefs. The kind of people that are disreputable sinners in that day and age were the whores, the sluts, the skanks, the prostitutes, the people who were leaders in organized crime. If you were to put those terms in our current everyday language, that would be the kind of people that I hang out with if I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to hang out with those people that are outside the the rules, outside the lines. That's what Jesus was doing back then. His evangelistic strategy was to love them, not to embrace what they were doing, not to say to them, hey, it's okay. No, Jesus was the one who taught on love your enemy. Jesus was the one who said, you must, you must, if a person takes your coat, offer it to them. If someone tells you to walk a mile with them and carrying all their garbage and, and clutter, go to with them instead. Slatch in the cheek, turn the other. This was the teachings of Jesus. It wasn't like he was saying to them, hey, hey, whatever you want to do, that's great. I'm just going to love you. No. He had a strategy that started with love, embracing these people and loving them. Here's the evangelistic strategy of the Pharisees belittle somebody, name, call, scum, and then uh, separate yourself from them. Total segregation. I mean, if I were to do that in this church right now, I mean, dude, look at the way you're dressed, you scumbag. I mean, how does that work? As opposed to me coming down there and giving you a big hug and a leg wrap. You know? Totally different strategy. Not sure that either would work on you, though. Okay, back on point. Jesus had a different strategy than the Pharisees. And their system of rules and doctrine, anybody that didn't fit into that, they just, they made them feel horrible. And they weren't afraid to call them out right in front of them that they were scum. Not exactly a good plan. And, but that still exists in this day and age. We have people who are, who are either a part of churches or churches take on a particular stance against other churches. Believers talking bad about other believers saying, I can't believe that you guys would allow this in your church. I can't believe that you would do that. And they refer to us at East Point here as being seeker sensitive, as if... That's really a bad thing. That somehow, some way, we have become soft when it comes to the principles and practices, the things that really make a person a believer. I disagree. In fact, I believe Jesus disagrees. So that's the problem. This great big gap, it needs to be gotten rid of. What God wants is for all people to come into a place where they understand his love, his love for them and then grow in their love back toward him. So how does he get rid of this gap? How does he eliminate it? Well, Paul addresses that again in this passage. It's, I'll call this, this the solution section, if you're taking notes there. And that's verses 13 through 15. And you'll see in here, 
He talks about how they had this pride in their circumcision, this pride in their system of beliefs, the pride in their written code, this legal document uh, that gave them their rules, gave them their structure, gave them all the setup of who they were distinctive from everybody else. All of which God said, tell you what, here's the plan. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to take it and abolish it. I'm going to fulfill it. In fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sum it up and I'm going to reduce it down. Now, if you've been a person who studied the legal code or the written code associated with the Jews, you would know that a lot of the religious beliefs that are still uh, held on to today are rooted right back in the Leviticus passages. In fact, there's a whole passage there in 19 where it talks about tattoos. It says that you should not mark your bodies or give tattoos to yourself. And for that reason, a lot of people go, see, I told you, tattoos are evil. But right above that, it says that you should not wear any kind of garment or clothing with mixed fabric in it. I've got a shirt on that's mixed fabric. I'm a sinner. (laughs) I'm not going to make you inspect your tags, but I would be willing to bet that most of you here are scumbags too. (laughs) Evil. Talks about not planting two different seeds in the same field. (gasps) Can you believe that people would do such a thing? But this is a part of the code. This is a part of the rules. This is what made them distinctive from everybody else. And if somebody, God forbid, ever planted wheat and barley in the same field, I'm sorry, but you're a scumbag. And That was the system. That was the rules. And what God said is, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. That's never what I intended to do. I didn't want you to use this to create a big gap. I didn't want you to make this distinctive to you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get rid of that. I'm going to abolish that thing altogether. In fact, when Paul wrote to the church in Rome, he states this very clearly. But now we are released, like freedom, released from the law, having died to that which held us captive like a slave, so that we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What he was emphasizing here was that there was this binding set of rules that had been used as a way of a person taking comfort and hostility behind toward anybody who was on the other side of that wall of rules. So God said, let me get rid of that. I don't want that to be a part of this issue anymore. In fact, let me sum it up, make it very clear so you don't have to worry about the written legal code anymore. I've got a great plan. Here is my plan. I'm going to reduce it down to two simple rules. And then I'm going to give you my spirit inside of you to radically change your boneheaded mind and your heart boneheaded, stoneheaded, whatever you want to call. He refers to it as a hardened heart or a hardened mind and head. I want to change that so that you will become able to fulfill these two simple commands. I bet you could quote them to me if you are a, a, a seasoned Christian, but let me read them to you. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, in other words, all that written code, and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Wipe it away, sum it up, give you the power to be able to do it through the Spirit. Love me with everything you got, and then love others as you do yourself. You get that figured out, gold star. That's what he wants. A spirit-enabled person who is now filled with the ability to be able to love God 
and then love others and make an impact in their life. And what would it result in? That's the next section, the result section. Verses 16 through 22 in this passage refer to earlier the pride and the contempt that was developed. And then it goes into and it talks about the result. And he uses some incredible words here. I see the word unity in there and how he joined together and reconciled, referring to them all as members, implying that those who once used to be on the outside are now on the, on the inside. And it's awesome. All this language and terminology in there is incredible. And he says that the reason why this has taken place is because two people or two different groups of people who were separated by this system are now, having that system been replaced, are able to come together and join together and be reconciled together all because of what Christ has done. And we can see that in the church that sometimes that just hasn't taken place. In fact, what we can see is that in the church, oftentimes what people are still doing is rather than approaching one another with love, they still like to grab onto a few different rules here and there and attach them into their doctrine or into their practices and essentially say, well, I really would love to love you. I would, but what I need you to do first is take a look at these rules. And then there's a big hug waiting for you at the other end. But we got we to gotta address this stuff first. That's, that's not right. What Jesus said is, is no, let me, let me get rid of this. Let me wad this up, throw this over to the side. I'm going to replace it with a new one. It's just two. Just two simple ones. I want you to love me, and I want you to love others. And in that, you're going to find a great result. In that, you're going to find the ability to be able to, with Jesus' evangelistic strategy, reach a world even a world filled with dirty, rotten sinners, even a world filled with scumbags, boneheads, you'll be able to reach them. And then my spirit will go into them, and then I'll begin to do some work on them just like I'm doing in you, and everybody will be joined together with love. In fact, when Paul was referring to this new result, he, he, he mentioned this word, the temple. And you've got to understand, this is an incredible metaphor that he's giving especially to the Jews. See, I've been blessed to be able to go over to Israel and particularly in Jerusalem and see what's remaining of the temple and get to interview and talk with some of the real religious Jews that are there. And I tell you what, a real religious Jew, you can see them when they go up to the last remaining part of the wall of the temple, uh, oftentimes referred to as the Wailing Wall or the West Wall. They go up to it and they believe that it is sacred. And they write their prayers down and they fold them up and they stuff them into the cracks and they, they pray and they're so devout and they're, they're, they're so filled with the faith that somehow, some way, that this big brick wall is significant. But back then, it was even more so as a source of their pride. This is the dwelling place of God Almighty. This is where his presence dwells. And I get to go in and you don't, Gentile. You'll never be fully accepted because you're truly not a Jew. Even if you behave and practice and do all the rules the right way, you're still not technically a Jew. <laughs> I am. And it was a source of pride to them. When Paul says in this result passage is, guess what? Old temple, bye-bye. New temple, yes, made up of you and you and you. And you and Jews and Gentiles alike doesn't matter anymore. All of you have become built together the new temple 
for the dwelling place of God. Old temple doesn't mean anything anymore. It's new temple. God lives in us, his people, the church. It's awesome. And he refers to them as being a significant part of that, an essential part of that. And what's more is he describes how it is that all of us are able to stay together, join together as a temple. Colossians 3, 14 through 17, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. That word binds, it's like a glue or a mortar. It keeps us connected to one another in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Let that be the rule. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. And always be thankful. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do, pay attention here, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Bottom line, people, this isn't about what good Christians do or good Christians don't. What it's about is that good Christians love. They love others. They love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they love others as they do themselves. They love. There is nothing mentioned in this passage or in any directive or command that came from Jesus himself or any of the disciples about a correlation of our salvation being connected to how physically healthy we are. Did you know that there are some people who have the audacity to judge another person's belief or faith or salvation based upon whether or not they're fat or skinny? They make the statements that a person who is overweight somehow, some way, is guilty of being an undisciplined individual. Stupid. Shameful. Wrong. Never mentions anything in there about wealth, prosperity. Some people actually make the claim that a person's financial status and security is based upon their faith. It's a ratio, direct ratio. If you really have enough faith, you should have a lot of money. If you don't have enough faith, then you're going to be poor. Or that it's a reward system that God has. You do good, you get money. You do bad, well, I'm going to take it away. Dumb. Bonehead. You know, there's some people who have actually judged other Christians on their inability to memorize Scripture and know where chapter and verse is at. Oh, well, you know, in Matthew chapter 9, it says this. Well, really, I didn't. They make statements and judgments about one another. None of that stuff's in there, by the way. Nothing. We don't need it in there. And as far as scripture is concerned, pertaining to drinking, let's say, do we really need a command that says, do not get drunk? Be sober-minded? I mean, if you're really thinking in terms of the law that's been given to us, the command of love God, love others as you do yourself, you really don't need another command. You would know that, let's see, me getting wasted or plowed under and then becoming violent or overly emotional or uninhibited is not loving toward God, toward others, toward myself. I really don't need a rule for that. No, I'm not promoting that if you don't drink that you should start drinking so you can become more evangelistically approachable to other people. <laughs> I don't. Now, I, I do happen to drink. But when I'm around people who struggle with alcohol, and I do a lot of crisis counseling or drug and alcohol addiction counseling, they know I drink. They know I smoke cigars, but I don't do it around them. And if I have them over to my place, I certainly don't bring it out. It's not a matter of a conversation even, really. There's so many other things to connect on. 
But I have been known most definitely, and if you ever see me in one of the bars, either downtown or here in the valley or at the scoreboard, and I happen to be sitting down next to a guy, having a beer with him, you can know this. He knows that I am a Jesus freak. He knows it. And he has no problem with me drinking, and I have no problem with him drinking. Oh, tattoos. You know, I have tattoos on each of my arms. I have my daughter's little footprint from her birth certificate. And uh, my, son's, uh, my son's footprint is on this arm. And the reason why I put them there was so that I would have a visual identification for a conversation starter with them throughout their life, and it's worked. They come to me and they ask me, hey, what's this? What is that? That's your foot. Really? Yeah. Well, what's going on? I said, that is a permanent mark. It stands for the fact that you are a permanent mark in my life. And I will never, ever, ever be free from this love that I have for you. You will always be there. Both of my kids were sitting in first service. And as soon as I started talking about my tattoos, they actually listened to me. <laughs> All the rest of the time, they're like, oh. But they know that those tattoos are significant to them. Now, some people have said, well, Matt, you got those tattoos and you're a rebel. If you were sitting here today and you think that the reason why I got those tattoos on my arms was out of rebellion, then you're a bonehead. And I mean that in the most loving of ways. <laughs> bonehead in that you're dense. You haven't listened to what has been talked about. And if you think that me calling you a bonehead is an unloving thing, no, it's a very loving thing. It may not be pleasing, but loving and pleasing are two different things. When Jesus called out the Pharisees being whitewashed tombs as hypocrites, he wasn't pleasing to them, but he was very loving to them because he was trying to jolt them out of their boneheadedness into a new reality, which is your evangelistic strategy doesn't work. All your rules, all your regulations, I'm getting rid of that and I'm replacing it with love. That's what you need to be doing and what you're doing is not loving. And if you are the kind of individual who believes that for somehow, some way, some reason, the best evangelistic strategy for you is while you choose not to drink or choose not to get tattoos or choose not to smoke a cigar, sweet, you've been given the freedom to not do so. But for you to claim that anybody who chooses to do so somehow, some way is in violations of God's law is downright wrong. And I would encourage you to take a look and open up your heart to what God would want from you and how he's designed you to reach people. You may not be able to reach the same people that I can reach and I won't be able to reach the same people that you can reach but we need to be reaching people, period. So I'm going to end with this. It's a very short passage, so I might read it three or four times. It's John chapter 13, verse 35. It says this, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. See, it is short. Let me read it again. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for one another. And notice he does not elaborate there, doesn't say anything about your rules, your beliefs, and your doctrines are going to prove to the world, hey, you're, my, you're mine, you're my kids, you're my disciples, you're with me. No, he says it's your love. It's your love. So here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's what I want everybody to walk away with today, okay? You need to ask yourself this question, and, and if you're really brave, you need to ask other people this question. Am I known for what I believe or for my love? Am I known for what I believe or for my love? Ask your kids. Ask your coworkers. Ask, ask your friends. Ask your family members. It doesn't matter. Ask somebody, if you're really brave, do you know me 
for my love toward you or do you know me for what I believe? And see what they say. Because truthfully, truthfully, the only way that any of us are ever going to make an impact in this world and what East Point wants to be known for is our love for people. Not for some complex set of doctrine and rules that's listed out with all the things that must be done in order for you to be accepted here. No, we want to be known for our love. Walk in, you'll get loved. You may not be living your life for God. You may not be living the way that you should be living, and you know that. And I might know that if I get to hang around you for very long. But I'm going to love you. I don't care what it is that you're doing. I don't care how you go about doing it. I might think that you're a complete and total bonehead, and you might think that I am. But I promise you, I will love you. And I promise you that regardless of whatever sin it is that you are engaged in, whatever it is, I will still continue to love you. I might, uh, I might think you're gross or disgusting or wicked and wrong or whatever, but the fact of the matter is, is that I'm sure Jesus got to hang around with a lot of people that, quite frankly, his heart just broke for because of what they were engaged in, and he knew how bad it was going to hurt them as soon as it caught up to them. That's what God wants from us. God wants us to be the kind of people who would represent him well and love others until it hurts. Can I get an amen? amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thanks for these, these people here, all of them, the ones who agree with me and the ones who don't. Lord, I know that you love us. I know that even, even the best of us still have room to grow and room to learn. I know that there are many that are here today, Lord, that uh, have, have struggled with fears about church and about you and being accepted. I pray that right now, what you would do for every person is you would open up their hearts and help them to really see what you want them to see about you. Go past my words, my demeanor, or my mannerisms, and don't let that be anything that stops you and your Holy Spirit from connecting deep with them in their heart. Penetrate in there and make them aware of your love for them and how you want to use love for others to reach them and bring them toward you. I pray that you do that for everybody here, but I realize that there are some that are here that perhaps don't know you. They, they don't even have a relationship with you. They want to. They, they maybe know a lot about you, but they're not quite sure whether or not they even have uh, a saving relationship with you. And if that's you and you're listening to me, I'm going to offer us a simple model prayer. You can either take my words, you can change my words, you can make them your own. It doesn't matter. It's not a recipe that you have to chant in order for this to work. It's an attitude in your heart that God already knows. But he says that if you believe in me and confess me with your mouth, you will be saved. So I invite you to make these words your own. God, I, I want you to take over this life. I want to surrender it to you. I need you to be Lord of my life. I've tried it. I don't want to be Lord of my life anymore. I've worshiped me instead of you. I don't want to do that anymore, but I can't do it on my own. I need your help. So will you please fill me with your Holy Spirit? And I've got this sin in my life and I could ask for forgiveness, Lord, but I know that if I don't get some help beyond just forgiveness, I'm going to do the same things that I've been doing over and over again. So I ask you to not only forgive me, but to give me some strength to be able to overcome this. Help me to find what's the right places to go or the right paths to walk 
so that I'm not going back into stuff that I know that I don't want to be in anymore. Please take over my life. I give this to you. Make something of it for your glory. And then help me to reach others for you. And if you've made that prayer your own, the Bible says that you have been marked and identified by the Holy Spirit and that you are indeed saved. Father, bless us today with an awareness of your presence. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing through this one last song. Ushers are going to come forward and pass out those offering bags. I encourage you to give. If this is your church home and and you're a person who utilizes the ministry here in order for your spiritual growth, I ask you to keep it thriving, keep it going. After this, I'll come back up and I'll dismiss everybody. Amen. If you were one of those people today who prayed that prayer or made it your own, I want to invite you to grab one of these uh, packets. They're at the back doors on the tables. Open that up, uh, thumb through that. This is some stuff to help you get started on this new path or journey that you're on in terms of your faith. If you'd like prayer today, when everybody's making their way out, you make your way forward. And also at the corners, front corners here of the auditorium, there is communion available to you if you'd like to take that before you leave. Thanks. God bless you guys. We'll hope to see you next week.